ora and welcome to Family, Whānau and Disability, a podcast brought to you by Parent to Parent New Zealand. We are here for the many Kiwi families out there caring for a disabled child or family member. We know the journey caring for a disabled or a neurodiverse child is not an easy or a straightforward one. So this podcast is a place to explore the issues that affect us, to share stories, swap tips and even have a laugh or two. We would love for you to join us each month, so make sure you subscribe. Please also be aware that the views shared are those of the individual and may not represent the views of parent to parent. This podcast is brought to you by Parent to Parent. Please note any views or opinions expressed by the speakers are of the individual speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent parent to parent as an organisation. Welcome to Connect, Inform, Support on Free FM 89.0. Brought to you by Parent to Parent, the not for profit organisation supporting families and whanau of babies, children, teens, and adults with any type of disability or health impairment. This week, Val and I are going to start a discussion on the huge topic of sexuality and gender identity with respect to the disability community. We will start off with a general intro into the subject, discussing the areas we want to look into and learn more about. We're going to talk about sexuality and gender identity in general before we go into the specific issues for people within the disability community. I'm going to begin by playing an edited excerpt of a programme recorded back in 2008 on Radio New Zealand National on the One in Five programme. It was recorded in June 2008 with Meg Tall interviewing a Wellington panel on disability and sexuality. Today on the Wellington panel, we have counsellor and educator on intersex issues, Marnie Bruce Mitchell, psychologist and policy analyst, Victoria Manning, along with David Corner, a person with an intellectual disability and a self-advocate with IHC. First up, what kind of messages did each of you absorb as a child or a young person about sexuality? What about you, Marnie? The messages that I got in my upbringing, and again, I was born in the 1950s, very conservative. Heterosexuality was normal, though of course that word would never have been used for any other relationships. Same-sex relationships were seen very negatively. I mean, it was still described as a mental illness in the 50s and 60s. Right, I think that wasn't removed until 1970-something. That's correct. For you, David, what kind of messages did you get as a child or a young person about sexuality for yourself? Well, I didn't really get much messages, you know. It was sort of th- wasn't really talked about much, you know, apart from, you know, what you actually saw on the TV and it always looked great and, and at the movies and on the radio and things. You know, sort of kept it to ourselves. Sort of wasn't really told much about the body parts until I got older and hasn't really worried me too much, you know what I mean? And so was, was sexuality or sexual relationships, was that something you thought you would have when you were older or...? No, I never dreamed of it at that time, you know, but I mean, it, you know, I probably did, but never thought it would ever happen. There's always lots of people, you know, I mean, you always used to see famous movie stars or good-looking ones, you know, I mean, you always used to think, oh, gee, wouldn't mind having it with those, but yeah. But it was fine, you know, I mean, often thought, well, one day if the right person comes along, but, you know, I mean, we've all thought that, but, you know, yeah. And what about for you, Victoria? What kind of messages did you get from family or friends or school or or religion about sexuality and if that was something that would be for you later in life? As a 
a deaf woman having a male interpreter uh, without a female interpreter available. I just want to be for us to remember that. Growing up, I had a deaf brother, um, and we shared a lot of information between us. We never really saw deaf adults around, and I think that had quite a big impact on us. In terms of our family environment, we saw lots of adults, and we knew that sex was part of the relationship, but all of those adults were hearing. They were quote-unquote normal, but we weren't hearing, and so that was something that we were we would often think about. When I became an adult and eventually made moves into the deaf community and discovered New Zealand Sign Language, I really developed a strong sense of self, and there I found my role models. I saw lots of different types of deaf people and lots of different types of relationships, whether they were straight or not straight, whether they were healthy relationships or not healthy relationships. That's where I really had my first exposure. And so how do each of you define yourself currently in terms of sexuality? Although obviously it's not compulsory to define yourself in, in any way. And Mani, do you define yourself in any particular way? Or is that a, a complex question when gender is maybe mixed or you identify more than one with the other? I realise that sexuality is often defined in terms of, of gender. Well, it is because the English, the English language is very binary. So it, it's an oppositional way of defining. So for myself, holding both parts of myself as male and female, I would I would describe myself as a queer person. But again, sexuality, there, there isn't really a suitable word to describe myself. But I would see whatever relationship I was in, even if I was in a relationship with a, a male person, that would still be a queer relationship it would it would not be a heterosexual relationship you know well one of the things that as intersex people as we find our voice and our language are exploring how do we start talking about sexuality and finding new words to describe these realities that we know and have lived yep so there aren't perhaps enough words yet and and probably like for a lot of people some people don't define themselves. They're just in a relationship with the person they're in a relationship with. Yes. And what about for you, David? How do you define yourself in terms of sexuality, if you feel the need to or don't? I don't, don't really define myself. You know, I am who I am because of who I am, you know. I mean, I'm whatever I want to be, you know. I'm one of these people who can have sex or, you know, if I want it, you know, with the right person and things. But I think I'm just what you call the average Joe Bloggs, whatever, you know. What about for you, Victoria, if you define yourself in any particular way in terms of your sexuality? I think I describe myself as someone who's happily married to the person I'm married to as, as, as a heterosexual person, but I'm very comfortable with my own identity and the various parts that I have to it. Do you think that each of you, your disabilities or other factors, impact on your sexuality at all? I mean, this could come up in... In different ways. I mean, we touched on it a little bit sometimes in terms of dating and communication. And David? No, I, I believe, you know, that it hasn't really. I suppose if I had to think about it, it probably has because I've probably been a bit of a slow learner in some ways, as, as you call it, because I was in slow learners classes. But, you know, I think it's in some ways, you know, by being slow in that, you know, or different, it's actually helped me to learn more about, about my sex, sex life and everything other than about everything to do with sex. You know, having a disability, I've always wanted to know more about things. You know, I'm one of these people who likes to know things in straight black and white, so I think I've probably, it's helped. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily a, no. a disadvantage to take it slow, as they say. I think it's actually an advantage, you know. I mean, as they say with the hare and the tortoise, slow and steady wins the race, and we all know what happened in that race. <laughs> <laughs>
And what about for you, Mani? Do you think that your disability impacts on your sexuality? Well, it did, and that's one of the things that I would like to see change in the future, particularly for intersex people as as people come into puberty, that they are provided both with information and people that they can talk to to explore. I believe passionately that our sexuality is a precious tonga and all of us are entitled to know about that and for that free choice to be there. But you can only do that with information and you can only do that if you know who you are and like who you are. Yes, for me it's taken a long time. I don't feel sad about that, it's just a reality, but that's not where I am now. And how do you think that information could be conveyed to teenagers who are intersex or or maybe people with disabilities generally, or people generally? You were talking about teenagers being comfortable with themselves and their sexuality. How do you think that can be conveyed? Well, I think, Meg, doing this program is wonderful, but the reality is I'm sure most of the audience will be adult. So conversations like we're having tonight need to happen at a high school level would be the appropriate place. You know, when people are talking about sexuality to introduce to everybody that it's multifaceted and has many dimensions. And, you know, the one thing that brings us all together here tonight is simply difference. And that's all that's different. Yeah, so having some of those, I mean, I'm not sure if there are groups of young people to go and and talk about sexuality in in quite an open way and have the students ask questions and, as you say, say that sexuality is for everyone, Mm -hmm. whatever that is. Is that happening here? Are people aware of of that kind of thing? I know some people who are involved in, in working um, programs in schools, and I think you know we're working really hard to, say, have the language of different sexual orientations to be introduced. But I think there's whole many more elements of dimensions that need to be there or could be there, and certainly we're exploring, and we're only scratching the surface tonight, that there could be many other differences represented than the ones that we've wonderfully got here. And what about for you, Victoria? Do you think your disability has impacted on your sexuality at all? Personally, I think no. But your question did make me think about a few things. When I was a lot younger and trying the dating thing, there were a few things that used to come up. Like hearing people would say, oh, you're dating? You're having a relationship? A deaf person can do that? There was a sort of surprise. And and that used to come up now and again. And I was sort of was a bit silly but I know I'm not alone I know a lot of deaf friends have a very similar experience where people who just don't know deaf people ask those kind of questions and you know how do you respond in some ways you just don't and questions would come up and not just about sexuality I think across the board things like oh my gosh deaf people can drive it's quite a common experience for us. Right, so never mind sexuality. They didn't even think deaf people could drive. So you're saying not so much a, a problem for yourself. You were quite comfortable in yourself and, and your sexuality, but society sort of even had a question whether you would even be a sexual being or a date. or Exactly, yes. And do you think that's changed for deaf people, say, you know, now, or is that still quite a prevalent attitude I think it's still there to some degree, although I accept that maybe it's lessened over the last, say, 10 to 15 years. I think that if it has decreased, it's a bit, well, it relates to what Marnie was talking about, perhaps more awareness, more discussions in schools about sexuality, sexual orientations, all that sort of thing, and that perhaps through that kind of process there's been a bit more awareness. 
And I hope that that sort of education, that's, those sort of discussions will help lessen those dumb questions that seem to come up so often. Yeah, so maybe the deaf or disabled young people of today won't get those kind of silly questions like, oh, you're dating, it'll just be assumed. Of course they're dating, that's what teenagers do. So we're going to talk about um, gender. 
Gender identity and sexuality, that's a, a gigantic subject. I know. <laughs> I mean, without um, even getting into the, the issues within the disability sector, within the disability community. My God, where do you start? So yes, we're where gonna, do we, we start? We will be interviewing some people uh, who, are, who have sort of lived experience, specifically within the disability community with respect to sexuality and um, gender identity. But I think it's a, it's a big enough topic that we can kind of just talk about it in general to start with. Okay. Where do you want to start? Well, <laughs> I'm going to get you to start on this because <laughs> it is, as you say, it's a huge, massive, a massive huge massive. topic. Mm. Okay, you're assigned a sex at birth. We talked about that earlier. Yeah. Because so I and I and I sort of said, well, you're either a boy or a girl <laughs> when you're born, and why do you have to say, why do you have to say assigned? But you told me. So would you? Yeah. Well. Th- just to, to roll back even further, actually, because there's there's two big subjects here. There's there's sexuality, and then there's gender identity, and they're two different subjects within a big thing about sexual human sexual stuff. So, talking about gender identity specifically, I am cisgender, which means that I identify as the gender I was assigned at birth. So when I was born, my parents looked at my physical body and went she's female right and as I grew up I, my parents were very much meh you play with whatever I, I was never really pushed into any kind of gender roles I had a big brother who I idolised and I used to dress up as a rough boy and be Luke the rough boy and that was a thing that I did and my parents were like meh whatever and so I was never made to feel bad for playing make-believe and stuff so I was I was fortunate to grow up in a very a sort of open household about oh you know kids play and kids make stuff up and that's fine but that happens deal. a lot, really, when Which you've got good. boys yeah. and girls growing yeah. up together. Yeah. Suddenly, you want to do what your brother does. Yeah, you want and to be like your brother. And, you know, and, things it is, like that. and it is often easier for a girl to play make-believe as a boy than a boy to play make-believe as a girl. And you'll often have people say, oh, you can't give him Barbies, you'll make him gay, and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous nonsense. But going back to the whole assigned mm. at birth, from, from the trans people that I've spoken to, my friends... The way I understand it is that you refer to the gender you were assigned at birth in contrast to the gender that you now identify with. So you always were female, a woman, but people didn't know that when you were born, so they assigned you male. Ah, that but you makes only sense. figured it out mm. later on when you were 16 or 20 mm. or 90 or whatever. Mm. I've got a friend who transitioned at 67. You know, so people don't necessarily figure it out early. They might spend their whole life wondering why they don't feel right in their skin. And there's a lot of mental health implications with that as well. So that that is about gender identity, how you identify yourself and then how you express that identity is another aspect of it. So a lot of women will feel like they need to express themselves with a lot of makeup, a lot of high heels and whatever. A lot of women don't feel like that. They just want to wear what they want to wear, comfortable clothes, pants, no makeup. And that's just a personal preference. But there are societal expectations around what women are supposed to look like, and we have the problem with fashion and media having putting certain expectations on people. I think nowadays millennials and Gen Z are, are starting to say, well, you know, screw your gender binary. There's not men and women. There's men, women, and everybody else. So there's becoming more, more labels and genders becoming more recognised as a spectrum. So people and they're. There's a biological aspect to that as well. There are people born intersex with indeterminate genitalia. 
who don't necessarily identify one way or another. They've made one day they may feel female, one day they may feel male, one day they might just go, well, I'm just a human, I'm not anything. So why should I have to have a gender assigned to me? And again, that's it. It, it's becoming more acceptable and within sort of younger populations, definitely. But it's, it's, it's older people <laughs> who find it hard to kind of wrap their head around the idea of gender fluidity, I think. And it's just about accepting that people want to express themselves differently and give themselves different names and, and choose different pronouns and that's not hurting anybody. Why can't we just do it? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be talking about sexuality mm. and and disabled people mm. shortly. Mm. So that is another area altogether. That yeah, is quite that's difficult. a whole different thing. Well, it's, it's going into sexuality and um, sexual preference and I think a lot of the time, able-bodied people, and I'm talking about physical disability more so at the moment, look at someone in a wheelchair or somebody with crutches or whatever, and they they don't see them as a sexual being because they see them as something that's a bit broken or a bit damaged. And I think a lot of people find it difficult to get into their heads that, yes, this human being has just as much right to a healthy sex life as you do. And we will be talk, hopefully talking to people who who can kind of give us a better perspective from that. But also then you come into the concept of consent. And if you get into intellectual disability as well as physical disability, about teaching your kids about consent and teaching a kid with an intellectual dis- difficulty about consent, how, how do you go about doing that? How these parents have now got a kid who's hit puberty who's got sexual urges but doesn't have the mental capacity for informed consent how do you then deal with that you know so we want to talk about that we want to discuss how how we can support families with that how we can help kids with that you know we want to talk about whether it's appropriate to put people on birth control if they are not in place to consent to taking birth control whether that's something that it's a lot it's a big can of worms it is it is but also an incredible worry for parents yeah and this is it i mean i remember we've had this conversation in the past where putting say for example putting women who have intellectual disability on birth control my instinctive feeling is who's touching my kid who has a who can't consent why should my kid have to be on birth control who's who's abusing them but then on the other hand we do have people in society who abuse them and it's horrible but it's true so we have to protect our children as well so how do you kind of balance that from you know taking the choice off your child but also in order to protect them how does how does that fit into supporting families and supporting kids and doing the right thing so it's a it's a big discussion and a i big think discussion and i and i can't really answer for people within the disability sector because i'm not disabled myself so I'd like to talk to people. Well, I'm hopefully going to talk to a few people about that. Just open the discussion. And I think the more people can talk about this stuff, the better it will be because it's just going to make people think about it a bit more. Well, that's coming up. <laughs> it's all rather exciting. I mean, um, Connect Inform Support. Um, it is going to be a big subject. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we. I, I worked back when I was 18. I was. I decided that I had too many prejudices about people in wheelchairs, so I wanted to deal with that. So I went and worked in a residential home for disabled students and the guys I worked with all had physical disability, intellectual, um, I hate the word normal, but they were intellectually the same as anybody else their age. But they had either muscular dystrophy or um, 
quadriplegia or uh, brittle bone and I was there as a carer and I went there to to get over my prejudice of people in wheelchairs my, or, it wasn't even a prejudice so that awkwardness of knowing how to talk to somebody who's sitting in a wheelchair exactly. without without patronizing people mm. so I did that and yeah one of the things we talked about quite a lot being 18 was sex and I remember one guy whose parents had kind of babied him a little was astounded to hear that one of the other guys had um, had a had nearly fathered a child by accident with his girlfriend and, and he was just like what what <laughs> have you had sex and the guy's like what do you mean you haven't why haven't you and it was interesting from two perspectives one parent obviously very frightened for their child and, and treated him like a baby even though he was in his 20s and other ones who was just like I'm just a bloke I just happened to be sitting down you know <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that and that was mind-blowing for me as a you know as a teenager being in that world you know and the I'm really pleased I did it. I met some fantastic people and I learned a lot about my own innate biases. And I think that's something that, that we can do as as people who are not disabled ourselves or but who either care for someone with a disability or who know people or who are in a world with disabled people around them. It's like, we need to teach ourselves a bit more, we need to learn more and go, hey, look, I might get shit wrong, but I'm going to try. I'm mm. going to try and improve. And mm. if I'm do something wrong tell me and I won't get offended if you tell me that I'm being crap <laughs> and that's something we need to do is say hey look I don't know anything about this you know mm. I'm going to educate myself so yeah so hopefully it'll be a very interesting few subjects few weeks of chatting about all sorts of mm. exciting things <laughs> but certainly something that needs to be discussed definitely and that's it and I think sexuality and gender identity just in general is becoming more of a, a socially acceptable topic so introducing it into the disability community and talking about it within that context is important because these parents have kids and they're going to want to know what to do when their kids hit those teenage years if the kid's got something else going on aside from just the normal puberty hormones raging around so how do I protect my child from the world and how possibly do I protect the world from my child if my child doesn't understand about social boundaries and appropriate behavior connect inform support join us next week on free fm 89.0 for support and information from parent to parent the program can be downloaded as a podcast and of course you can get more information on our website parenttoparent.org.nz this has been family Fano and disability from parent to parent i have been your host johanna we hope that you enjoyed the podcast and that you'll join us again soon